This is the Wellness Puzzle Podcast with Andrew Jobling, author, speaker, educator, entrepreneur, and AFL player. Join Andrew as he continues his lifelong journey as a student of human behavior. This podcast will help you live your passion, explore your potential, step into your power, and embrace your possibilities. Embrace your possibilities. possibilities. Hello there, my name is Andrew Jobling and welcome to the Wellness Puzzle Podcast for another week. I've just finished the most incredible conversation and I know I say that every single week, but wow, Patria King is a lady who's doing incredible, incredible stuff. My association with Patria goes back many, many years, in fact decades, as she was one of the people who was instrumental in my mum's journey with her cancer and helping her live the best life of purpose. And so this conversation with Patria is incredibly personal and emotional for me. But Patria King is the founder and owner of Quest for Life Foundation, which is an organization that helps and supports people going through any sort of mental health and trauma, whether it's life-threatening disease, whether it's any sort of trauma really. And she is an author of nine books. She is a speaker. She's a celebrity, really, and I'm so incredibly grateful that she was open and willing to spend time with me on the Wellness Puzzle podcast. She shares generously, and there is so much wisdom in what you're about to hear. So now's the time to turn off notifications, get rid of distractions, and enjoy my conversation with Patria King. It is an absolute pleasure, Patria, to have you here. So thank you so much for your time. No, it's a pleasure for me too, Andrew. When I was scrolling through LinkedIn, as I do on a daily basis, I'm, I'm always looking to connect with wonderful people. And I saw Patria King and I thought, there's a name I know and there's a name that holds a special place in my heart and we'll share that shortly. But I thought I'm going to just put it out there and see if she would be open to talk to me on a podcast and love the fact that you're so open to do it. Being that you're such a busy lady, well, busy is probably not a word you'd use and it's it's also what I've banned from my vocabulary. You're on purpose. You're making a difference. You're doing enormous volume of stuff at the moment, aren't you? We are. We are. But then I'm a bit of a Dolly Parton fan. She said, find what you love to do for work and you'll never work a day in your life. And so for me, this work is both a real privilege because we get to go into such deep and, and personal issues with people when they're going through very challenging times. So we work with a variety of people who are dealing with some kind of trauma. And it might be the trauma of a diagnosis of a life-threatening illness. It might be the trauma of the bushfires. It might be the trauma of domestic violence. It might be for police and veterans who've been exposed to a great deal of trauma over a long period of time. So we run both five-day programs at our centre in Bundanoon, which is a a 35-bed guest house on nine acres right in Bundanoon. And we do about 100 workshops out in the community, mostly this year uh, around New South Wales, because we haven't been easily able to get into other states. But, you know, when people are going through long drought and mouse plagues and then someone has a diagnosis of cancer on top of that, you know, it's, it's a lot and it wears people financially thin, their resilience gets worn out. 
So we go into those communities just to teach them a few of the basic tools of resilience so that they can continue doing what they're doing with a lighter heart, hopefully. Yeah, and boy, over the last 18 months to two years, hasn't there been an enormous volume of trauma? I mean, obviously, you started Quest for Life, I would imagine, as a support for people going through life-threatening disease, particularly cancer. But now, as you say, there's trauma everywhere. The, yes. the yeah. COVID, the floods, the bushfires, now there's mice everywhere. It's just yeah. one thing after another. And, and unless people have those resources and skills to be resilient and to trust themselves and know that they've got that strength within them to create mm. change, then, wow, there's a lot of unhappy it's people. A, it's a recipe for a disaster, really. And, and personally, I think we're about to hit a wall of exhaustion and flatness and maybe anxiety and maybe irritability because people don't understand generally that you never deal with the emotions when you're going through the trauma. The, the emotions are always dealt with weeks, months, and sometimes years Jeez. after the trauma. And so it's only about now and probably not even in Victoria because of lockdown, but it's probably only now that people that COVID's kind of beginning to settle, uh, that people will begin to deal with the emotions from the bushfires. Yep. And they won't put it together. They won't wonder why they're feeling anxious today because of the bushfires back in early last year. So there's a lot of education to be done yep. so that people understand that this is perfectly normal way for body to do the healing is the emotional healing always comes after. Yeah, that's an interesting comment, Petrea, because I do a lot of stuff in schools and I was in a school in northern, very northern suburbs of Melbourne a couple of years ago in an area that was very heavily struck by fires 10 years earlier and the well-being staff of the school saying you know there's still kids that are still suffering from the aftermath and the trauma of fires yeah. 10 years previously so yeah, yeah that absolutely makes sense and i would also think patria a lot of the carers now as well i would imagine a lot of the people working with you and for you have their own struggles trying to help and manage and support and what they're seeing and what they're hearing and the emotional effect mm. that has on them i think now there's a lot of these people in these supporting roles that are trying to help victims of trauma that are experiencing yes. their own trauma how do you help your guys your team deal with all that sort of stuff <laughs> well in order for them to be able to work with us at quest in addition to their health qualifications whether they're a psychologist or a psychotherapist or a counselor or a yoga teacher or whatever they might be they also must have suffered and worked through their own suffering so that they really, because unless a person feels like you get them, you get why they're feeling the way they are, why they're acting the way they are, unless they feel totally safe and not judged, they won't even come near us. And so we have to have people who are familiar and comfortable in the realms of suffering for which there are no easy answers. And so our staff, for a start, are very special people because they have the capacity to be in the presence of great anguish and to bear witness to that anguish, knowing that you cannot fix it, you cannot change it, you cannot make it better. And so that means we're confronted also with our own helplessness and our own powerlessness 
to change what's happening to someone we love. This is equally true when you love someone with cancer. Yep. You know, I've had men say to me, how come my love can't fix this? You know, I don't get how this can happen and I can't do something because I, their powerlessness and helplessness is so painful. So you have to be comfortable with your own sense of um, powerlessness and, and helplessness. But the important thing to recognise is that you turning up makes a huge difference because otherwise you're left alone with your suffering. And if you can blurt it out to someone, if you can, because sometimes we don't know what we think until we hear what we say. If you can provide that safe harbour for people in which they can unravel themselves and talk themselves into meaning, they have their own best answer. My best answer is only ever going to be mine. Helping that person by skillful questioning perhaps, or even just your presence, will enable that person to get to the place where they know what their next best answer is. So the quest for life journey began back in the 80s and that was born out of your own trauma. Tell us a little bit about mm. why you decided to start Quest for Life and what was your experience. And I know you've had a, um, a life-threatening disease. Tell us a little yes, bit about I that, Yes, I was diagnosed in 1983 with acute myeloid leukaemia and told I wouldn't see Christmas of that year, which was three months away. My children were four and seven. I just separated from my husband. My brother had just taken his life in Kathmandu. Oh my gosh. And my brother had told me before we were both 10 that he knew he had to kill himself by the time he was 30. And I remember as a very little girl thinking, I have to grow up really quickly so I can look after Brendan. And I did, I grew 23 centimetres in the next 15 months and that deranged the bone growth in my legs. And so at 13, I left school and went into hospital where they cut my femurs, they turned my lower legs out, they cut my tibias, they turned my lower legs in. Then they did that all over again because my knees kept swiveling in. So I had three years in hospital, which was terrific because I was away from Brendan and I got to read all of the books I was actually interested in, which were dictionaries and encyclopedias. Really? And dictionaries Thomas, and encyclopedias? Come on, Patria, surely. Thomas Merton and Alan Watts and Krishnamurti and all of these people who talked about why are we here on the planet because that always puzzled me what's the purpose of human existence how do you know that you've lived the life you came here to live how do you arrive on your deathbed with a bit of a grin on your face feeling like well that was a ripper uh that was a good life well lived so when i was diagnosed with leukemia and obviously i didn't die the doctor said i would still they said i wasn't meant to have a remission and it wouldn't last and they said it could only be a few days, a few weeks. Well, by then I had my whole life all packed up in this little suitcase all ready for the big trip. And then the plane got cancelled and I was faced with how much do you unpack? How do you live with great uncertainty? And I found that far more challenging because when you know you're going to die, you have to write a will and a funeral and uh, hopefully get up to date with your relationships and be at peace with yourself and your history. And so I'd done all of that. And I didn't know then how to live. I felt like I know how to do a good death now, but I don't know how to do a good life. And I went into practice as a naturopath because that was my training. 
And I didn't really want to be a naturopath. Um, but then all of these amazing people turned up with cancer. And within about three months or, or six months, I was only seeing people with life-threatening illnesses. But then they came telling me stories of domestic violence, of growing up with someone mentally unwell, of chronic pain, of relationship breakdown. And these have all been my experiences as well. And while it's never helpful to say to someone, I know exactly how you feel, because you have no idea how the other person feels. If you've been in those hard places yourself, you are more comfortable being with other people who are venturing into those places, maybe for the first time. And we can be good companions to one another in the hard places. And it's very hard to find people when you're in the hard place because people want to fix it or change it or cheer you up or be positive or do something that's usually totally unhelpful. Your presence, the ability to turn up and be deeply present to the suffering of another human being is a gift that I'm blessed to yep. work with many people who have that gift and who are very happy to share it with others. That's awesome. So Patria, the obvious question is this, you were given three months to live that was back in, did you say 1983? That was yes. 38 years ago. And wow. I'm looking at you I now stopped. and I'm thinking, I'm seeing someone who's got a lot more life left in her. I can see <laughs> decades more life left in you. What do you feel like was the secret to you overcoming that devastating diagnosis and still being here almost 40 years later and obviously living a life of joy and purpose. Mm. What do you see? What do you believe? Because, I mean, we'll never know for sure. But what do you no. believe is the key to that? Look, I think, I think just two things. When I was in hospital as a teenager, I had literally hundreds of X-rays. They just invented those portable X-ray machines that they brought to the bed, and they didn't always remember to bring that big, heavy, protective blanket. So I do think I got a big dose of radiation in my teenage years because leukemia is nearly always associated with that. But I also think the combination of, I just moved to America, my brother had just taken his life and grief was very complicated because I blame myself, you know, I'd failed to keep him safe. And my relationship breakdown, my husband leaving. So. I think all of those things on top of what had happened in my earlier life was perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps why I developed leukaemia. And I can't say why I didn't die, except that I did do an enormous amount of weeping because up until I had leukaemia, I had never wept. In our family, we didn't do weeping, we did coping. And we're terribly stoic and we never talked about feelings. And I ended up in a little cave where St. Francis used to retreat to outside of Assisi in Italy. And when I went into that little cave, I felt like I'm either gonna die in here or find peace in here, but I'm not coming out. And there was an old priest there who took care of me and every night he'd come down and he'd drag me up the stairs to an old table which monks had been eating from for centuries and he'd put in front of me a, a meal and sit over me and make sure that I ate it and so I was very loved by total strangers as well as people who knew and loved me well 
so it was very humbling and I realised that I know nothing, I know zip about anything. It was very humbling. Here I was sitting on a mountaintop in Italy, away from everyone I loved, and I really knew nothing about anything that mattered. And I wasn't at peace with myself, and I wasn't at peace with my history. And so when I went into that cave, I couldn't keep the tears at bay. And I think that was a combination of being very unwell and and despairing and grief-stricken. And I sobbed and sobbed and like body-wracking sobs for weeks, went on for weeks. And, you know, then it was not just weeping for, for Brendan, for my family, for that poor little girl who took on such a crazy responsibility, but it was weeping for humanity. Why does it have to hurt so much to be human? Why do why do kids lose their mums? Why do mums lose their kids? Why do dads suffer so terribly when their children are sick or dying? So I think that weeping for the, the world of humanity and how painful it can be to be a human being. And I think when you're deeply comfortable with that land of not knowing, you're a better companion to be with other people who are likewise in that own landscape within themselves where they don't know themselves, they don't know what's next, they don't know what's happened. So I feel very blessed. That's amazing, Patria. I've heard of all sorts of solutions and strategies to overcome cancer with you know, naturopathy, <laughs> nutrition, meditation, um, <laughs> exercise. First time I've heard weeping <laughs> as a solution. But I love it because you've just released all these toxins and all this stuff and all these things that you've been holding on to, I'm sure, for so, so many years. Yeah. And that well, provided that been, freedom. I'd also been meditating for 15 years and I was a vegetarian, a very strict vegetarian, because I'd adopted all of that when I was about 17 uh, because I was crippled with such terrible arthritis. So that's when I learned to meditate and, and when I changed my diet. So actually when the, the priest, the first meal he put in front of me had meat in it and I hadn't eaten meat for 15 years. And I realized that for me, it was more healing to be grateful for what someone had lovingly prepared for me than for me to say, I can't have what you've prepared because of a belief system that I had. And that's what I mean by it was very humbling. Yep. Because I, I was a naturopath, I had all of these studies, I've been studying for years. And so I had this depth of knowledge, but not the lived experience. So I was trying very hard all the time, earning my right to exist, earning my right to heal from all the surgery and the arthritis in my legs. I think that pattern of earning my right to exist went right back to childhood. Because Brendan, you know, he probably invented ADHD 20 years ahead of anyone knowing what that was. And he pretty much filled the house. So there wasn't any space really for anyone else. And so I tried to be as invisible as I possibly could in my childhood. Uh, and that had huge consequences. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Patria, this is incredible conversation so far. We're going to have a quick break and we're going to come back and dig a lot deeper into your journey. But wow, amazing so far. So thank you. Be inspired. 
be engaged, get motivated, and make real change in your life and the people around you. Andrew Jobling knows how to inspire. On stage, he's riveting and engaging. Andrew is helping audiences around the world live their best life. Book him for a face-to-face -face or an online event. Go to andrewjobling.com.au to find out more. Patry, I'm just going to apologise in advance if I get a little bit emotional now because the reason I know of you and the reason why you've got such a special place in my heart and, and my dad, who's still alive now at 86 years old, still a sprightly young man he is and living hmm. a wonderful life. My mum came to you, found you when she was diagnosed with, and I'm not sure it was the breast cancer or was the secondary yeah. cancer in the liver that she finally found you? I, I think she might have had secondaries in the liver by the time she came to me. And, uh, you know, secondaries in the liver is not the, really the best place to have secondaries. And, you know, but she, she had them for 14 years. I mean, she was pretty extraordinary. She was. And, you know, I think Sue found a lot of peace within herself. And Sue and Bill used to come up regularly and spend months when we first bought the centre. And Bill got all of, your dad got all of our financial systems in place and your mum got the shop in place and she operated the shop. And, uh, you know, they were absolutely integral to the first six months, 12 months of Quest even existing in its present form here in Bundanoon. They really worked their tails off as volunteers. And they were just amazing, along with a lot of other people with cancer who all wanted to help. Because when we bought this place, you know, it needed completely refurbishing. New floors, new, new ceilings, new plumbing, new electricals, new lighting, everything. And so it was really a whole bunch of people with cancer and their partners and family members who all came together to make this building a beautiful place so that other people could come there and gain something. And, you know, if you think about that, most people when they have cancer are pretty preoccupied with themselves and treatments and all of that. But Sue and Bill, I know it gave them a lot of meaning and purpose to assist us to get on our feet. And I think that is very health-giving as well, life-giving, because you could sit in a chair with cancer thinking I'm on my way out and that's it. But Sue was not a person like that. She was like, okay, so be it. And what am I going to do about this? That's very inspiring. Yeah, it is. She is my hero yeah. and will always be my hero. And I think I mentioned to you when we spoke the other day that I've written a book called Dance Until It Rains and that's her journey. But, Wonderful. you know, I remember a phone call I got. I was teaching at the time and my dad has changed enormously. I mean, he rings me all the time now. He tells me he loves me. I've got such a beautiful relationship with my dad now and absolutely adore yeah. him. But he would never ring me. Like, mum would always be the person that would ring. And I remember getting a phone call at lunchtime on a Friday just before going into a year 10 double period teaching maths. Now, I don't know if you've ever taught Patria, but teaching maths to year 10 students on a Friday afternoon is not where you want to be, okay? Anywhere, <laughs> anywhere but there. Absolutely. And I get this phone call from my dad and I get this message, Andrew, your father's on the phone. And I thought, oh, this has got to be bad. That was my initial reaction. I mean, he never rings. 
and my dad, as you know, I'm sure you remember him back then, he was very matter-of-fact. Like, he was loving, but in his way, which was direct and matter-of-fact. And he said, Andrew, your mum's been diagnosed with cancer. And I just remember that moment. I still remember it. Like, that was back... When did you start Quest for Life? 85. Okay, so that would have been early 80s. And I just remember being stunned and in shock. And then I cannot remember that hour and a half of trying to teach maths to year 10s that afternoon. I just remember getting through it and getting home. You know, and that was such a cancer back then was, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, life's over and panic. And and I know, Mum, like we all did, it was shock. It was why? Mm. Why me? Why mm. us? Why this? Why? How come? Why, 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 why? And I know she rushed in to get the lumps removed and the chemical radiation and all the stuff that happened to be declared all clear to only find 18 months later that now that's reappeared in her liver and the diagnosis, prognosis, not quite as extreme as yours, but was not optimistic at all. And it was at that moment that she really, she had to dig deep and find her meaning. And one of the things about you, Petrie, that I'm so grateful for is you're part of the reason why she survived 15 years beyond that prediction because she absolutely loved going to Bundanoon. And as you said, she's, I mean, much to my chagrin, it's like, well, she's not doing my washing and she's not cooking my <laughs> meals. What's going on? I had to come to terms with actually being a little bit self-reliant. But, wow, what an amazing... You mentioned word purpose And I truly believe, and I talk about this all the time with a lot of the stuff Mm. I do, when you find your purpose and you know why you're around, things change. Physically, mentally, emotionally change. What you attract into your life changes. The people you attract into your life changes. Your physical reality changes. Yes, absolutely. And, And things change at an epigenetic level. You know, last century we thought all diseases were genetic. And if we could just find the problematic gene and snip it off, we'll have world peace. You know, we'll be able to get rid of the breast cancer gene, the anxiety gene, the depression gene, the bowel cancer gene, whatever the gene is, we'll get rid of it. This century, however, though, we know that it's the environment, epigenetics, epi means above genetics, what is in the environment that's giving information through the receptor sites on the surface of the cell that is telling the gene whether to express, whether to modify its expression or whether to stay suppressed. So last century, we were helpless victims of our genes. This century, we're co-creators of our health because to a large extent, we have control over what's in the epigenetic environment because that's what we're eating and drinking. It's impacted by the quality of our sleep. It's impacted by the quality of our exercise, the chemistry of our own emotions, which we can do something about, the chemicals that are in the environment, some of which we can do something about. We can get all the chemicals out of our own food, out of our cleaning cupboards, out of our personal care products, out of our gardening cupboards, so that we get rid of as much of this toxicity as possible. So now we do have quite a lot of education to give to people about what's in the epigenetic environment and how they can contribute to their own physical and mental well-being and how that has a direct impact on that epigenetic environment. We know that there are four particular qualities that people who don't die on time have. 
So if they've been given a time, three to six, six to 12, 12 to 18, doctors only work in quarterly instalments because they're talking about a statistical group of people and they're never talking about the individual. So I'd much rather be a live anecdote than a dead statistic. So people who have these particular qualities are the ones that either far outlive their doctor's prognosis or who are now alive many years after they were told that they would no longer be on the planet at all. And they're known as the four C's. And then I met a researcher in 1996 in Montreal and she had gone through 3,000 cases of spontaneous remissions and she'd found the same four qualities from the medical records that I found in my clinical practice. So these are people who regain control over their response to life. So they're people who will may go through, why me, it's not fair, I don't deserve this, this did happen, it happened to me, given I'm a woman, a man in this circumstance, what's an appropriate response, not a reaction? So this first C, regain control, is the difference between a reaction and a response. A reaction is always in the body. A reaction is automatic. A response requires consideration. So when you think about a time when you were really reacting to someone or something, and I were to ask you how old do you feel right now, people say somewhere between two and seven. And what you are literally doing is you are reactivating the physiology of the two to seven-year-old and living it again in the present moment. But you don't want to come from being a seven-year-old in your interactions. So we need to recognise where do we react in our own body? Is it in the belly? Is it the heart? Does my breathing change? Does my jaw tense up? Do I hold tension in my shoulders? Because that's a reactivation in the body and we don't want to speak from that. We don't want to act from that because we're bringing a little kid into the circumstance. A response takes us into new territory. Perhaps an example if you've just had most of your stomach removed for cancer, but you've always eaten meat and I'm going to keep eating meat because meat's always what I've eaten and I'm not going to be told by cancer or anyone else that I can't eat meat. That's being a victim of your circumstance. A re an appropriate response could be, well, maybe now my stomach's not going to manage meat so well. Maybe I need to research. Maybe I need some hydrochloric acid, some bromelain, pepsin, trypsin, pancreatin, because now my stomach's not producing that and that will enable me to digest my food. So the first C is that difference between reacting as if you're a victim of your circumstance or being a proactive co-creator of your experience. The second C is a commitment to living, which is to have a deep reverence for your own life, a deep respect for your own life. Now, whether you think there was a creator or there was a big bang or those were the same thing anyway, before there was something, there was nothing. And out of all of that nothing came all of this something, which is pretty extraordinary. So I'm with Einstein. Either nothing's a miracle or everything's a miracle. So I think it's pretty extraordinary that we're even alive, especially given that our bodies are outnumbered, our human cells are outnumbered 10 to 1 by bacteria that live in us and on us. In fact, I heard Deepak Chopra talking the other day, we have so much bacteria in and on us, we're far, far, far outnumbered 
that maybe the consciousness that we experience is actually the consciousness of the bacteria and they just use the human form to get around. So that's an interesting Very interesting. Turn, turn it on its head. But this second C, commitment to living, shows up in three particular ways. It shows up in our priorities. Because a lot of people are on the I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when I'm over cancer. I'll be happy when I'm better. I'll be happy when I'm off the crutches. I'll be happy when the COVID goes. I'll be happy when the fires are finished. I'll be happy, you know, I'll be happy when. Very deeply enculturated into all of us. These are your only priorities between now and death. You're not your body, but you've got one. You need to nourish it appropriately. Put into and onto your body the things that belong there. And human beings have been eating slow food, seasonal, local, organic, whole food forever. It's only in the last hundred years we've started changing our food supply dramatically so that it's industrialised, completely different. A lot of food's not even grown in soil now. Well, that's where the nutrition is. It comes from the soil into the plant. So we need to nourish our bodies appropriately. We need to rest them. We need to exercise them. You're not your brain. You've got a brain. And you need to quieten it down. Because when your brain is entrained and in your service, you have access to qualities that are only available to you when the brain is focused in the present moment. Insight, intuition, wisdom, humour, spontaneity, creativity, compassion. Those are the qualities of our essential nature. It's second nature to us to judge ourselves, judge other people. And it's interesting we call it second nature. You'll hear people all the time, oh, it's second nature for me to think like this, feel like this, react like this. No one ever questions, well, what's your first nature? What was there before you took all that on? So you're not your brain, you have a brain, and it's your job to quieten it down. So you have access to those useful qualities. You're not your thoughts, you're not your feelings. You have thoughts, you have feelings. So that puts us in a different relationship with our body, with our brain, with our thoughts, our feelings. And it helps us to anchor our sense of self in that which is beyond change. Because your body will change. Even if you make it to 110, it'll get saggy and baggy and wrinkly and grey and bits will fall off and not work. So you don't want to invest yourself in your body. The brain changes all the time. Your feelings change all the time. So you don't want to invest yourself in those. So the piece that passes all understanding is the finding the piece in the I am. Not I am sick, I am tired, I am bored. I feel sick, I feel tired, I feel bored. But I'm not those things. So we do a lot with language, cleaning up the way we think about ourselves and other people. So the second aspect of the second C are issues around communication because a lot of us are not in communion with ourselves. We don't know what we're feeling, nor do we have the capacity to skillfully communicate that to others. And so even when you think you're a fabulous communicator, you'll be misunderstood and misconstrued and heard. So I think becoming a good communicator is a lifelong journey. And the third aspect of the second C are issues around forgiveness. And that's a five-day workshop for most people. But That's a lifelong challenge for many people. Yeah. Forgiveness is never, ever, ever, ever about condoning. It's not about saying what happened was okay. It was not okay, but it did happen. 
So forgiveness is an inner process whereby we liberate ourselves from the consequences of having felt wounded in the past. We no longer react in the present as if we're still carrying any wound from the past. And isn't that a liberation? We're free. If we're waiting for the other person to see how they wounded us and to feel sorry about it and want to apologise, we might wait a long time. So we don't want our peace to be dependent on other people. So forgiveness is giving up all hopes for a better past. Love it. Just is. Love it. And I love the also forgiveness or unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Yes, yes. Yes, and forgiveness doesn't make them right, but it does set us free. I love it. So forgiveness is quite a complex subject, as you could imagine. I can. Um, our third C is a sense of challenge. You know, we love to be challenged. As human beings, that's where we get all juicy and excited and a sparkle in our eye because we feel, yes, I'm on my way to that. When our challenges are overwhelming and we can't make any meaning out of them we really suffer and we're going to have to find a way of making meaning out of the experience that we've had and obviously for me i've created the quest for life center where other people who are ready for the home for the bewildered can come can unravel themselves and then can learn something about neuroscience and epigenetics and a pathway forward that's going to work for them. But most people only wake up out of suffering or inspiration. Some people are inspired and they will do what it takes to bring about whatever that inspiration is. More often, though, it's suffering that we bump into one of the Ds. We call them the Ds in life, a drama, a disappointment, a disaster, a diagnosis, a death, a divorce, a despair, a depletion, a depression, a dementia, a dad, a daughter. And you bump into that D and everything that's second nature to you doesn't work. Maybe it's second nature to you to not sleep or sleep all the time or not eat or overeat. Might be second nature to you to blame other people for your unhappiness. It might be second nature to you to blame yourself for your own unhappiness. But this D demands more from us than we've ever had to draw on up until now. And we get to that fabulous place where we say, that's it. Something has to change and it's me. Because I can't change the D. I can't change the outer circumstance. The only thing I can change, and it's an enormous point of power, is how I choose to see that and how I choose to respond to that circumstance. In that lies all the power. Yes. But not over the thing itself. Sometimes we can change things in, on, the, on the planet, thank heavens, uh, and people are inspired to do so. But a lot of people do wake up out of suffering and then they may make meaning by volunteering, as Sue and Bill did, your parents. It made meaning out of their own suffering to come and contribute to the happiness of other people. So she had that one in bucket loads, your mum. They had a lot of purpose and meaning because they could see that, yes, I'm dealing with cancer and I can give my time and skills and expertise and energy 
to this enterprise that's going to make a difference for a lot of other people. Isn't that heroic? You that, know, that's the heroic in people. Absolutely heroic. Yeah. Now, I know there's another C, Patria. We're going to hold off. We're going to come back because we've got to keep people hanging on because they want to know what's the fourth <laughs> C. So keep listening and we'll explore C number four after the break. Running a personal training or group fitness business usually means hours organising bookings, answering missed messages and chasing payments until you discover the Fitty Trainer app. Fitty becomes the heart of your fitness business by driving your sales. Fitty gets you paid faster, helps maintain your clients, and simplifies arranging bookings by automating everything. Let Fitty focus on your business health so you can focus on your clients. Visit fitty.com to download or schedule a live demo. Patria, I have been sitting listening to you just absolutely mesmerized. Wow, that is decades and decades of experiences and wisdom and I'm sure glorious stuff-ups and all sorts of things have brought you to this place where you're at today where you've got such clarity of what purpose is and happiness is and you communicate it so beautifully. You really, really do. So um, so it's this has been an amazing conversation so far. So thank you so much for that. It's um, a pleasure. So the fourth C. Well, our fourth C is that sense of connection that we have to our own authentic spirit that we've got our mates, our friends, we've got connections, that people that love us and get us, and even when they get us, they still love us. Uh, it can be connection to country. You know, our Indigenous, our First Nations people have a profound understanding of connection to country in ways that us blow-ins have got no idea because they know they grow out of the country and they return to country and that country nourishes and sustains them and gives them life. So they have a completely different relationship to the natural environment, whereas we have a tendency to look at the natural environment as a commodity to be used. So they have that deep sacred connection to country, which we don't really understand by and large. It can also be connection to cosmos, to the divine, to that we have our sense of place, of belonging on the planet. And if you look at the absence of those four Cs, if you imagine the person really regardless of whether they're dealing with cancer or the bushfires or depression or grief or whatever it is, we need to regain control. If you feel completely out of control and a helpless victim of the circumstance, your quality of life won't be near so good. If your commitment to living is, I'll be happy at another time, and you don't take care of your physical, mental, emotional and spiritual well-being, you're not in clear communication with yourself. You've got no capacity to forgive and keep blaming what happened in the past as an excuse for who you are in the present. All your challenges are overwhelming and nothing has meaning, and you have no sense of connection to yourself or anyone else I think that's a good way of looking at the opposite of peace of mind. And that peace of mind recognises, look, this is planet Earth. This is where it all happens. If you didn't want suffering, wrong planet. But we, we need to be told from the cradle, this is a roller coaster ride. Now, I love roller coasters. I'm first in the queue always. But I would not get on a roller coaster without a seatbelt. 
And yet so often we get on this roller coaster of life without a seatbelt. And the seatbelt are those four C's, that sure knowledge of how to care for yourself physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually. So that when the roller coaster swings to the left, as it surely will, and you could have sworn it was meant to go to the right, you're more easily able to adjust. Oh, this is not what I expected. However, this has happened. How am I going to respond? If you don't have a seatbelt, you're more likely to get stuck with, why me? It's not fair. I don't deserve this. And while it's fine to go through that, we don't want to live there. We want to go through, why me? It's not fair. I don't deserve it. But this did happen. It happened to me. So how am I going to respond to this? So it's a far more empowered way of living life, regardless of the D that you might be dealing with in your life. And it's a proactive, engaged way of dealing with almighty challenges. I remember Patria when my mum passed, and this is nearly 17 years ago now, and I was in Sydney. And I was talking myself out of it. Will I go? Won't I go? And and my dad said, like, go, she's okay. And to her oncologist had said, she's stable. She's fine. So I went. And probably against my better judgment, I went. And I was in Sydney doing some business stuff and kept checking in with dad every couple of hours. How is she? How is she? Fine, fine, Andrew. Just relax and enjoy. And at about four o'clock, five o'clock that afternoon, it was a Friday, he said, maybe you better come home. She's taking a turn. And, and I remember this incredible panic panic as I rushed to the airport to get a flight and then the flight was cancelled and then I just remember sitting on the flight on the way home at around probably nine nine o'clock at night on a Friday with this sinking feeling in my gut that it was too late and I got off the plane and turned on my phone and sure enough there was a message from my dad said that she'd passed and the despair you know, you spoke about despair, depression. You spoke about all those feelings like anger, more so with myself. Why did I do it? What's wrong with me? And I beat myself up and I did spiral for quite a while and didn't think I would ever find joy again. And people would try and comfort me. And it's interesting. Now, everything you're talking about, you know, when you look back, and my life now that I live in, a whole heap of stuff's happened and will happen and will continue to happen where the people are going to die and there's going to be pandemics and there's going to be trauma. It's going to happen. And I look back now and my most powerful feeling is gratitude. Now mm-hmm. that I've written the book about mum, she's been gone 17 years. The book was published in 2011. So that's 10 years on now. And I know I can see the meaning now. I feel like there's a reason and a purpose for her life and her death and her journey and it's there to inspire and help other people and she did it while she was living and she's been doing it for 17 years since she's been gone and I know she will do it for many many generations to come she'll impact people's lives because she was alive and I'm very aware now anytime something happens that would be easy to spiral into fetal position on the floor and why me it's not fair I find it a much easier position to be able to look at things and go, okay, so what's the good in this? What's there to be grateful for? What can I learn? How can I become better? And that's taken a long time to get to this place. You know, I think if you could maybe give some people, as we sort of come to wrap up this podcast, Patria, how do you find that wisdom or that positive or that gratitude or that lesson 
in something that seems so devastating, an occurrence mm. or a diagnosis or whatever, how are you able to stop and find something good in this? Mm. Well, it's often referred to as post-traumatic growth and not everyone achieves it by any means because some of these tragedies can certainly stop us in our tracks. But I, I've been very inspired by so many of the people that I've met over my years and who've demonstrated enormous capacities, you know, like the Abdullah family, you know, Danny and Alayla, whose three children were killed by a, a drunk driver and their cousin as well. And, you know, they didn't want to spend a moment in rage or revenge. And Danny had some people who'd help see the guy away if he wanted them to. And he said, no, no, I don't want you to. That only perpetuates the agony. And they've created I Forgive Day on the 2nd of February every year. It's being rolled out through all the schools so that they focus on forgiveness on the 2nd of February every year in the curriculum. This is how people make meaning out of meaningless tragedies. But in the first instance, we've just got to sit with the emotions of whatever's happened. We've got to weep the tears. We've got to rail at it. We've got to scream about it. We've got to write about it, talk about it, until we come to that place where that did happen and it happened to me. And given I'm a woman, a man in this circumstance, what's an appropriate response? So that we find that wisdom within ourselves and not that reactive, panicky part of ourselves that's so familiar, second nature to us. See, sporting people talk about we have to do the stroke, do the, the swing 10,000 times and it's second nature to us. We practice patterns as little people 10,000 times 10,000 until it became second nature to us. One of mine was to make myself invisible. You know, I, I, I'm, to this day, I can be really good at doing invisible. I can move through a room and no one, I, I don't know how I even learned to do it as a kid. You know, and this impacts us and it impacts our epigenetic field until we wake up and start getting more conscious about how we choose to live our life and not just be a helpless victim of our life. And sometimes I think these Ds are sent to break us open because the pearl only comes about in an oyster because something irritated the heck out of the oyster. And it's these things that carve deeply into us that are also the very means by which we get to know ourselves in our depths. Mm. And you found that little boy, you know, that was desperate to get there for mum in that moment. And I can only imagine how hard that was feeling, how do I shrink space and time and, and loving someone so much and being so far away and, and impossible to get there. The agony of that. While everyone just goes about life and in airport and you're in this state, you know, it's, it's, very, um, it's very profound. And you realise that actually maybe... A lot of those people in the airport were all in a state. Well, they were all in their own state. In fact, when I got off the plane, Patria, I thought I've got to 
get out of here as quick as I can. I just got to get out of here. So my plan was I won't wait for my luggage. I'll go and get my car out of the long-term car park. I'll come and drive past, jump out, grab my bag, and off I go. So plan was going beautifully, except I stopped in a bus zone just outside the doors. Honestly, I was in there for probably two minutes maximum came out and I was getting written a parking fine for stopping in a bus zone. And I tried to explain my situation. I said, my mum's just passed. I've got to get to her. And the guy just said, look, I'm just doing my job. And he kept riding. And I jumped in the car, I drove off, and I left him in my wake, still with a half-written parking infringement in his hand. I mean, he had his stuff. He obviously was going through stuff. Otherwise, he would have said, mate, I'm so sorry, and he would have torn up that infringement. But he didn't. So there was stuff. He had his stuff as well. And you're right, we all have our stuff. So I think my main message is we all need to be a little kinder to one another, kinder to ourselves and kinder to one another because right now there's a lot of flux and change on the planet and people don't cope well when things keep changing. And so do whatever you need to to maintain your own inner equilibrium if that's being in nature, if it's meditation, if it's prayer, if it's yoga, if it's singing, dancing, candlelight, ritual, whatever it is, make sure those things happen now. If you know soaking in a bath works for you, go soak in the bath. Do it. Because right now there's a lot of people who are very irritable, fractious, down on themselves and don't even really understand why. So... A little more kindness is what we need to ourselves and to one another. What a wonderful way to finish this podcast, Patria. It's been incredible. Now, if people want to reach out to you to find out more about Quest for Life, or I know you're an author of, you've got nine books, is that correct? Yes, that's you're, right. And you're available for your speaking stuff. How do people find you? Yes, they're welcome to go to the website, which is questforlife.org.au. And all the books and CDs and there are download practices and all sorts of things there. There's also a lot of articles about some of the things that we've been talking about. And of the books, Your Life Matters is the one that encompasses most of what we've talked about this morning. Okay. Uh, but people are very welcome. And then, of course, we at the moment we're running 34 five-day programs a year. And some of those are for people with depression and anxiety, some for people with physical illness, people with post-traumatic stress injuries, people who want to age healthily. So we've got a whole range of different programs for different needs, as well as all of our work out in country areas. So people are very welcome to be in touch anytime. Awesome. And a lot of those programs, Patria, are they available online as well, or is it all face-to-face program? Yeah, online programs, and we're just about to develop some modules, course modules for people as well around sleep and dealing with anxiety and burnout and subjects like that. That's so those will be coming in the coming weeks. Wow, something to look forward to. Patriath, again, I just cannot tell you how grateful I am for your time. Uh, it's you been have, such a pleasure. You have such shared a pleasure. so I see Sue and Bill in your face so much and it's beautiful to see. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing so generously yeah. and I look forward to hearing about all the wonderful things you're doing around the world. So, Patrick King, thank you very much. Thank you. Wow, what an incredible conversation with Patria King. How much incredible wisdom was there in that? How many amazing messages were there from weeping versus coping? The four C's she talked about, 
She talked about being kind to yourselves and forgiveness and being kind to others. And she talked so much about how do you live your best life. And that's what this podcast is all about, helping you live a life of joyful longevity. And I can't even begin to express my gratitude for Patria for what she has just shared so generously and openly in that conversation. Reach out to her. Quest for Life is doing some incredible stuff. Her books, her programs, get involved. If you want to live your best life, trust me, she is someone you want to connect yourself with. Her website is www.questforlife.org.au and obviously you can find her, Patria King and Quest for Life on all the social media handles as well. Thanks to Pietro and the team at Fiddy for sponsoring the podcast. Thanks guys, you do a great job and I love what you do with the fitness app you have to help people. I also am very grateful for what you're doing to help spread my message to the world. If you're getting value from the Wellness Puzzle podcast, and I'm sure you are, and I am absolutely positive that you got incredible value and wisdom and inspiration from my conversation today with Patria King, please share it with other people. It is my mission to create a wave of wellness around the world, and I need your help. I will be back next week. You bet I will. And I will be wearing bells next week. And I will be bringing the Wellness Puzzle podcast back to you. My name is Andrew Jobling and I hope you have a wonderful week.